not everybody grew up with my father as their father and got to look through those fucking books and go, nope, I'm never doing any of this. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) I did, however, get to use a website that I'm pretty sure my dad has published work on. You should have left a a, a comment on one of his works. Oh, man. No, you can't do that because it's like it's a it's a government website. So you can't leave comments. Okay. If you click on certain parts of like radiation safety and environmental radiation, like I I guarantee you he's written those words, which is crazy to me. (laughs) Like, uh, that's just my dad, guys. It's no big deal. Like, (laughs) Some of us have nuclear physicists for dads and some of us don't have dads. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, that's right. Your dad taught me how to change the oil. So we're good. He's in. (laughs) He totally counts. I've claimed your entire family pretty much for my own. (laughs) They love you. (laughs) They better. Honestly, they they probably love you more than they love me. But whatever. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Uh, I got a lot of science for you today. Yeah? What type of science? Nuclear physics. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, this will be fun. I found a Chinese-American nuclear physicist. Nice. There you go. Yeah. Mixing things up a little bit. I like it. So we finally found... A scientist from the Eastern world who was so fucking brilliant. My, like, I can't even begin to wrap my head around any of it. But I'm going to try. And we're all going to try together. I mean, I'm just along for the ride. I'll be honest. But (laughs) I'm definitely intrigued because I really don't know that much about nuclear physicists at all. Okay, so, spoiler alert, uranium is involved and... So are aliens. Oh my god, you should see my face right now. We got like legit aliens. <laughs> no, I wish we had legit and not aliens. I like, like so metaphorical legit aliens. Okay. Yeah, your brain is already starting to hurt. Welcome to my life. <laughs> you know what? The more you tell me, I was gonna kind of insist on going first, but I wanna hear about these fucking aliens. I mean, okay, so it's a very small part of what it is, and it's not a conspiracy theory. It is quantum mechanics, really. Okay. I know that I just said that, like, nonchalantly. Like, everybody knows quantum mechanics and nuclear physics. But oh, yeah, duh, obviously. We got this. Let's do this. She was born May 31st. 1912 in the Jiangsu province in China called Liu He. I apologize. I don't speak Chinese, so we're going to go from here. Father's name was Wu Zhongyi, and the mother's name was Fan Fuhua. So she had a great relationship with her dad, and he would push for the growth of her education, and he was a bit of a feminist because he started an elementary school just for girls 
that she went to. Oh, nice. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And then she ended up in like a boarding school in China, pushed through to uh, a university there called the National Central University in Nanjing in 1930. She originally chose to study mathematics, but then later transferred to physics. And then while she was there, she was involved in student politics. So she led protests and sit-ins. So I don't know anything about Chinese-Japanese relations in the 1930s, but from what I understand, Japan invaded certain parts of China at that time, and things were kind of tense. Yeah, fucking Manchuria. They fucking went in and scooped that shit up. Things were not pleasant. She graduated in 1934 with her bachelor's and continued her education at Zhejiang University. And she studied physics there as a graduate student. And then she moved to something called an Academia Sinica as a researcher. Her supervisor basically had earned her PhD at the University of Michigan. And she was pushing for Wu to do the same. She was like, look, this is a great university. You should go abroad. You should study physics there. So she puts in an application and she gets accepted. So she and a friend of hers who was a chemist got onto a boat, sailed to California. And you know how like her dad made the elementary school and was like, do your education, do your education, do your education. Mm -hmm. Her uncle funded that. So she's got a family who's like, go be awesome. That makes such a big difference. I feel like there's been so many people between scientists and artists that we've talked about who have the support, and given the time period, it's usually the father's support that is able to propel them forward. Right. Oh, my God, yeah. Because, like, they have that power they can give to their child. And, like, I see something great in you. I know that you're not, like, a son, but you have potential, and I love you, and I see that, and I see that you're going to do amazing things. Please move forward. That means everything. Mm -hmm. Truly. No, it really does. It makes such a big impact. So... They end up arriving at California, and when they get there, they decide to, like, visit various places. One of the places that they visited was the University of California in Berkeley. There she met a Luke Chialiu Yuan, and he showed her the radiation laboratory. So there was this cyclotron particle accelerator that was created by an Ernest O. Lawrence that would later actually win him a Nobel Prize for physics. And that was actually at the University of Berkeley. That's pretty damn impressive, right? A nice and pretty man with access to a particle accelerator showed her around campus, and she was basically weak at the knees. I mean, we all have our personal taste. (laughs) It was mostly for the cyclotron particle accelerator. I'm not going to lie. She was like, I need I need to be right here in California. So she on like basically on the same trip goes to the head of the physics department and then like got the okay to study there starting immediately. And the school year had already started. Nice. I mean, that's some persuasive power. Her thesis as a graduate student basically focused on beta decay, which I know, I know, I gotta strap in. All right, here we go. Strap on in, because we got a bunch going on, okay? So, do you know anything about atoms? Well, I showed up for class. 
the breakdown of any element, they have three main parts. Protons that emit a positive force, neutrons that emit a neutral force, and electrons that emit a negative force. The number of protons dictate what element it is. A stable, happy atom has the same number of neutral forces as it does positive forces. If there are more or less neutral forces, it's the same element, but it's unhappy. Those unhappy atoms are called isotopes, and they're radioactive. So they're radioactive because in order for the atom to become happy, they need to get rid of excess neutrons, and sometimes that is done by the process of beta decay, which is what Wu knew up and down, and what her thesis was on, basically. So essentially, a neutron in the middle of the atom, which is a neutral force, instead decides that it wants to become a positive force. And in order for it to do that and no longer be neutral, it has to emit its negative side. So it's emitting an electron. So that emission of that electron makes that particular element radioactive. It's what we call gamma radiation. But it also allows the atom to become closer to a stable, happy lifestyle. So over time, all of the excess neutrons will become protons and eventually find stability. Does that make sense? Uh, that it, it stops becoming radioactive when the cell or the, the unit stabilizes. It finds stability. Yeah. Yes. But because there are now more protons than we started with, the element has now transformed into a completely different but happier element. So basically, the elements can do a bit of swapsies with how unstable they are. It can do a bit are. of, exactly, it can do a bit of swapsies. Now, the unstable atoms are held together by what are considered weak bonds. So that, that becomes important because she eventually becomes the expert of beta decay. Okay. So she graduates in 1940 with that particular thesis in place. And then 1942, she gets married to the guy who gave her a tour of the radiation lab. There you go. So it worked. It fucking worked. <laughs> Best school tour ever. Amazing. 1947, she gives birth to her son, Vincent Yuan, who would also grow up to become a physicist. So, like, oh, nice. Keep it in the family. Keep it in the family. So, around 1942 to 1944, she and her husband and family, they moved to the East Coast. She becomes a faculty member at Smith College, and then eventually she goes on to Princeton University mm -hmm. in New Jersey. She becomes the first female instructor in the physics department there. Uh, we're talking early 50s now? Mm -hmm. At Princeton, so okay. pretty awesome. But she would rather research. So, she was kind of like getting uneasy and was like, I, I just want to, I just want to research stuff. So she ends up actually finding a spot at Columbia University where she is teaching, but she also is part of a research project. And that research project involves more science. <laughs> so she helped do development for the Manhattan Project, which in that, I mean, historical context, at that point in time, we were trying to harness radiation. We were trying to harness nuclear power, whether it be for the bomb or whether it be for energy sources. Like during the wartime effort? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. She became a U.S. citizen in 1954. So this was before she became a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. So... She helped develop the process for separating uranium so that she could enrich it. Again, we were talking about different kinds of what we call isotopes, which different versions of uranium. And certain versions of uranium are better under the action of fission. So fission essentially is when you, you break apart the atom. Okay. You break it apart so that it releases energy into the world and it creates power. And that's what you're hard to Whether destructive or... Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her her project was finding which version of uranium was usable, one, and two, how to do it. Specifically, molecular diffusion of two different gases. They added fluorine 
to the specific gases that they're using. Okay. Which is just another element. And what that does is that makes... It, like, separates. So it separates one uranium from the other one. So the re- uranium that we that they didn't need is attached to the fluorine, which creates something called hexafluoride. Okay. The uranium that they want to use is separated from other uranium atoms, essentially, and can therefore be used for fission. Okay. So they're just kind of straining things out. Yeah, exactly. So, yay, we're harnessing energy. Very cool, right? 1952 to 1958, she becomes an associate professor, and in there, she decides that this is <laughs> this is where things get weird, Megan. You ready? <gasps> is it aliens time? Because I'm ready. 1956, she conducts the Woo experiment. Ooh, what is that? Ooh, exactly. She, at Columbia, knew this other Chinese-born physicist. His name was Song Diao Li. In the mid-1950s, he and another physicist, also from China, Chen Ningyang, they were kind of skeptical of a physics law called the Law of Conservation of Parity. So, what in the absolute fuck is the Law of Conservation of Parity? In our world, left is left, right is right, up is up, down is down. Right? Yes. Right. Awesome. For some fucking reason, physicists and others decided they wanted to know what would happen if you basically put a giant ass mirror in front of our world. Would the physics that affected our world also affect the mirrored world? Would left still be left? Would right still be right? Ugh, is this like some of that theoretical physicist stuff? Oh, yeah. I told you. Quantum mechanics. Oh, my God. They should just go hang out with philosophers and just never come back. (laughs) The overwhelming consensus was that, yes, in fact, if you put a mirror, if you mirrored our world, everything is mirrored in the mirrored world. What a shocker. Okay. What a fucking shocker. Except the two physicists were like, I'm not 100% that that's the case. Everybody else was like, are you fools? And they were like, no, really, let's look farther into this. Because it was true for electromagnetic interactions and for strong nuclear forces. So forces that were really strong guys, right? Are we talking about things like like the inherent gravitational pull, like that kind of unbreakable bond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it had been, it had kind of, it had been tested for those two things. What it wasn't testing was the weaker interactions what what in the nuclear physics world we called weak interactions or weak forces and those were basically the interactions between subatomic particles that were responsible for radioactive decay so like what happens to the weak bonds and the weak interactions we haven't tested that so who are these guys gonna call they're gonna call the authority on beta decay our doctor, okay. Madame Wu. And she was like, yeah, I got this. All right. So long story short, she freezes the atoms of cobalt. Which, from a painterly point of view, makes a lovely blue. <laughs> uh, because cobalt 60 is an 
isotope that is unstable and it basically has to stabilize itself into nickel. So it's like it's like, oh well, I'm actually nickel. Like okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So I'm not gonna get too into detail of how they set up the experiment, but imagine she takes these cobalt atoms and places them into two different electromagnetic environments under freezing temperatures. One environment represents the current world and our current physics. The other environment is the mirror world, basically. And it was set up in the exact same as the first environment, but the poles of the electromagnetic fields reversed or mirrored. So the electrons that we talked about earlier that shoot off a radioactive element during beta decay, they were observed with special attention to the direction that they were headed. So it was observed that the electrons of the atom had a preference in the direction they were emitted. So they seemed to, like, love to travel away from the south pole of the magnetic field. They did not like that south pole, which meant that physics cared about which way the poles of a magnet were pointing, which meant that a mirrored universe would not have an effect on this law of physics, and it therefore disproved the law of conservation of parity. It also gave the solution to something called the Ozma problem. So some guy named Martin Gardner wrote a book called The Ambidextrous Universe, and in it, he introduced the Ozma problem. It was simply asking the question that, what if we had contact with alien life forms? How would we explain the difference between left and right to them? I like to think it's not a what if, but like a win. That's right. I believe in aliens. We're not the only intelligent life form out in the entirety of existence. That's some selfish ass shit. <laughs> and like, why would they come to us and not another planet with intelligent life forms? I don't know, man. But apparently, just in case they decided to show up and ask us which way was left and which way was right, we got it. So Wu's experiment told people that a mirrored world would not have an effect on the direction of radiation emitted from the weak decay. That if you could tell which way the electrons were being emitted, you could tell which pole of a magnet was south and which one was north. So the poles of a magnet are dictated by the rotation of whatever planet we're on. And this is important because the orientation of a magnet and its poles dictates the flow of electricity in a coil wrapped around it. So if the south pole is up, the current of electricity will always go left. And if the south pole is down, then the electricity will always flow to the right. So is it just that test is a way to be able to explain like the subatomic directional behaviors of matter on our our Earth? Yes, exactly. So theoretically, you would tell those aliens to set up an experiment exactly like the one Wu did at Columbia University. You then had a proven way of explaining absolute left and right in the term of physics, which was not yet discovered. Okay, so even if we might not know, like, the atmosphere or the gravity levels of another planet, we can still imagine how certain elements are, they're still going to behave the same way then because of her research. Yes. So that if we met aliens and the first thing they asked us was which way's left and which way's right, we would tell them these are the conditions in which you're going to figure it out. I just feel like as an Earth ambassador, I would push my way to the front. I'd be like, no, shit, seriously, aliens, that's the first goddamn thing you're asking. <laughs> seriously, who put you up to this? And then one of the aliens in the back mumbles like, see, shit, I knew. They, they're on to us. They're <laughs> Just shut up, okay? I want to get an A on the school project. Just ask him the question. <laughs> and I'd be like, seriously, not like, take me to your leader. Okay, actually, don't ask about our leader right don't, now. Just That's don't. not important. <laughs> but seriously, left and right, 
Yeah, that's that is. Yeah. The meanwhile, big the scientific community is giving me the fucking dirty eye. Like shit, the sit the fuck down. <laughs> we have an experiment for this. <laughs> like, oh, not even like, what's the question of beauty? What's the purpose of art in life? Does life imitate art? Does art imitate life? Like, come on. Nope. Fucking left and right. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but uh, just being able to orient, like, what's going on where on such a small level, that seems really significant. It makes my head hurt. I Yeah, I'm along with you. I tried really hard, guys. I'm not great with those. That's why I don't have a PhD in physics. That's fine. You know what? These darn women with their PhDs, they give <laughs> us some tricky times for explaining to a general public, their contributions. Your scientists and my artists would probably make some really awkward small talk at a cocktail party, based on what I now know of her. <laughs> so for this week, I have not a sculptor, and not a painter. I've got a first. I've got a photographer. We're taking some pictures. You know, there's a small part of me that wants to ask if there was uh, photographic evidence of all this somatomic nonsense you were explaining. But I feel like it's a whole different buttload of stuff that we're, we're not going down that black hole. No, no, please, God, don't make me go down that hole. Not today. <laughs> so instead of going down that black hole, uh, we are going to exotic Russia. Yay! Uh, we're not staying there too long. We're just kind of stopping by. All right. So we're going to a Tambov, Russia in 1908. And that's where our artist Ida was born. Uh, initially born Ida Carmenian, but at some point she dropped the last name and just started going by Ida Car. So that's that's what I got. Ida Car, I like it. Unlike most artists that have covered, there's fairly limited formal biographies of Ida. Like I just kind of get a little bit about her family and growing up, but from what we do know, her father. Melkin. He was a teacher. No mention of her mother's name or what she did. I know she was an only child. They were of Armenian descent and moved quite a bit growing up, which given the political climate in Russia during that time, totally makes sense. So Ida was born in 1908. In 1905, the Russian Revolution kicked off. Also from 1905 to 07, there's the Armenian Tartar Massacre, and that left hundreds dead. So plenty of political upheaval. And if you remember from last episode, that's the same time that our artist family was leaving Russia because there was massacres for Jewish people. So that's why last episode, our artist family got out. That's why this episode, her family tried to get out. And so the same year that Ida was born, uh, Lee was born too in 1908. So we've got political people, they're traveling around. Her father's work also took him to different schools. So they went from Russia to Iran and eventually settled in Alexandria, Egypt. That was about 1921 when Ida was 13. Her father's work also took him to different schools. So they went from Russia to Iran and eventually settled in Alexandria, Egypt. Mm -hmm. That was about 1921 when Ida was 13. Now, for his only child, Melkin wanted the best for his daughter to have a super solid education, which right on par with what the, the father of your scientist was all about. And he puts his only child in a very well-to-do French private school. And later on, he's like, I love you. I want you to be a physician. Like, no stress. And at the age of 20 in 1928, with her father's support, she moves to Paris to take up study in medicine and chemistry so she can be a physician. Did she fuck up? 
Why, why do you ask? Did she fuck up? She became a photographer. Well, at least she didn't become a ceramic artist. At least she didn't become a vet. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, no, she did not fuck up. All right. But we've talked about it a little bit. Paris in the 1920s, it was fucking hot shit. Right. That was the place to be for intellectuals and artists. Like, at the same time, our little fresh-faced Ida is arriving in the city. We've got artist Romaine Brooks from episode 13, like, in a fucking lesbian love triangle at this point. It's a great time. Like, I am super jealous of these ladies. I know. Like, to be in your early 20s in Paris during that time, like, it I just, it must have been amazing. So, unsurprisingly, I didn't stick with the whole become a doctor thing and kind of led more uh, I'm going to enjoy myself as a 20-something-year-old in the creative capital of the world thing instead. That's pretty great. Yeah. So what do you do? You become a singer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what? Which, as you know, it's, this is not our first performing artist episode, but instead photographer. But uh, become a photographer would not happen in Paris. Not just yet. Uh, she focuses on singing and the violin. She falls into the artist crowd in Paris because it's fucking world renowned for that. And for Ida, one person that was really influential was a painter and photographer, Heinrich Heinsberger. And he became a really important photographer and they hooked up pretty quickly together. Like we're really immersed in the creative scene in Paris and they got along with other artists at the time. They were moving in the same circles. So while she's in Paris, I mean, Ida, she's going to galleries, to bookshops, to artist studios, to the cinema. I mean, she's got a lot of freedom. So after being in Paris for five years, 1933, she's 25. She's back in Egypt with her family and she kind of fucking hates it. Her and Heinrich, they'd gone through a breakup. You no longer sing because of vocal issues. And compared to Paris, Alexandria had fairly little to offer creatively. She wrote in 1934, quote, If I stay in this accursed country, I'll probably never love again. My life is very sad, and I'm spending the best years of my life like an old maid. Oh my god, what a tragic early 20-something-year-old. I know. Life is hard. Life is hard. And this is where photography comes into the mix. So the story goes that Ida was walking down a street in Alexandria, lingered in front of a photography shop, and the owner just happened to be chilling out front and offered her a job. Just randomly? Here, have a job? Yeah, as like a like a receptionist kind of position. Gotcha. And she was impulsively like, sure, why not? And so just like that, she was working in a studio, and she had negotiated studio access in the darkroom on her days off. Now, Milena, it has come to my attention that we're old, and people don't know what a darkroom is. <laughs> i saw the fucking questions going around after season three of stranger things mm-hmm. and i was like are you fucking shitting me yeah the red light yeah why are we talking about the red light oh my god and i was like how is this a thing so yeah i don't know do you want to give us a, a quick little rundown because i mean i don't know what it is and you know what it is and i assume <sighs> people listening know what it is but you know holy shit okay it's been a while <laughs> <laughs> And 15 seconds, go. And go. Uh, Okay, so we did not always live in a digital age. So what happened was science. We got a lot of science today. Bringing it all back, right? So this paper is not magic, I promise you. The paper itself is a light-sensitive paper. So you're painting with light. So the more light that is on this paper, the darker the actual image is going to be. 
that's what the red light is for because that does not get detected on the paper. So when you're in the dark room, you can do all of this. You can move around the room because you have the light that your eyes can pick up, but the paper can't when you're doing the enlarging process. You can kind of have like the negative shine on for 10 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever, but then the image goes away when the light stops on the enlarger. So then you're left with a white piece of paper and you bring the piece of paper to a developing stage. You leave it in for a couple seconds, and that is when science happens, chemicals react with the chemicals on the paper, and all of a sudden a picture is formed, and that negative image that was on the film is now mirrored on the paper. Treated with chemicals, developed on photosensitive, light-sensitive paper. I just, I don't know. Okay, so I miss, and I, I know this sounds crazy, I miss the smell of the chemical that fixes the chemicals on the paper so that no amount of light that is actually on the paper will cause more exposure. Yeah, it, it halts the photosensitivity of it. it yeah. Or the light yeah. sensitivity. So it no like the paper is no longer photosensitive. No amount of light is gonna put more um color on it, which means you mm-hmm. can walk around with a photo in hand in broad daylight and it's no longer sensitive to that light. But it has such a specific smell that literally I could be in there for like an hour and I would smell like that for the rest of the day. <laughs> um, so it's definitely nowadays it's a it's a dying art form for that process. The camera store that I went to buy all of my chemicals from, it shut down. It no longer exists. Yeah. Yeah. With these little these like niche markets for for things like that, it's it's hard. It hurts. Yeah. Well, for Ida at the time, that was what was totally the normal. So she didn't have to worry about supply issues, thankfully. So like working at the shop, photographing friends and family, I mean, that's how she got a better feel for the process for, you know, subject matter wise. And then like you just talked about the mentioning the uh, the more mechanical or technical process of developing the film. And it also was a way for her to meet others who were into photography, like a Edmund Bilali. And he was an Egyptian government official and a very serious amateur photographer who she ended up marrying in the late 1930s. How sweet. After they marry, they move to Cairo together and they open their own photography studio. And it's pretty cool because from the start, Ida is totally uncompromising in what their studio produces. She won't do the standard, you know, static wedding photos, passport pictures, none of that BS. Absolutely not. But that meant at times the studio wasn't really making that much money. Instead, Ida's shooting these like moody close-up portraits and these surrealist still life images. And this is when she's really establishing herself as an artist. Ida and Edmund's studio, it was in a very fashionable neighborhood in Cairo. During World War II, the studio wasn't too hindered by the war, you know, and things like getting their supplies. Um, Egypt was technically neutral. Cairo was acting as the Allies' base for the Middle East, with the, the English leading the military charge. Yeah, I don't remember Cairo being like... That's it's not it's not on the list of cities that were talked about when you think of World War II. No, there was a pocket of surrealist artists in 
Cairo, and that's a group called Art and Liberty. Ida was exhibiting work alongside them, twice showing her photography in their group shows, and those work caught the eye of a British Royal Air Force member and art critic of Victor Musgrave. Now, Ida and Victor, they met in the early 1940s, and by 1944, Ida's 36, and she's divorced her first husband and marries Victor. Their home together in Cairo quickly becomes a hub for artists and writers. And for Ida, that pretty much recreated the creative scene that she had known in Paris. But with the war over a year later, Victor was appointed manager of an art gallery in London, so off to England they went, and that's where Ida would really establish herself as a prominent photographer. So once in London, didn't take long for Ida to settle in to surrounding herself with other artists and writers. Now with her husband's Victor's position and her studio over the gallery that he worked at, it like really opened up her access to practicing artists of the day. Now, in terms of who she got to meet, it really increased when the gallery moved in 1956, when she was 48, into Soho, which was described, quote, as the center of London's drinking and whoring bohemia. My kind of city. Your type of neighborhood, because, like, for an artist, that's a pretty good place to be. Mm-hmm. Now, Ida, she would photograph sitters in her attic studio above the gallery. Uh, she would also photograph on location within artist studios, uh, you know, pretty much doing commission work. And then she would occasionally sell images to the press. And Ida worked really concisely. And, and that was also a personality trait that could really endear people to her or really irritate people. Typically, she would shoot for about half an hour. Mm-hmm. She would use one roll of film. And what? from that, yeah, she would choose from those 12 shots which ones to use. 12 mm-hmm. shots? Again, I'm telling, I mean, this is 19, 1950s at this point. There's a lot more con- constraints in terms right. of, you know, right, right, right. what's offered. Oh, God. And and she favored, you know, natural light to create, like, a strong contrast with her, her shots. Uh, an art critic said of her work, quote, the results, simple, unaffected, but often dramatic formal relevations of character. And Ida, she wasn't interested in glamour or, like, pretentious shots. And she didn't touch up photos after the fact to make the sitter look better. For Ida, the point was to, quote, find the essence of the person in a single photograph. I spend like almost no time like when i do edit it it's to crop to fix the levels but it was Mm -hmm. very simple editing and i would send it on its way because i i didn't want to manufacture it too much and there's something to be said about the kind of art that comes with taking one picture and then turning it into something completely different but like for me it's about capturing what's in front of me at that moment. So I totally understand. That was completely her MO. She wasn't really interested in trying to make it look like it's something it wasn't. No. Going into a shot, she had an idea of what she wanted, which at times could be off-putting for people. I mean, sitters have described her as intimidating, but for me, I sense it's, it's simply a matter of a woman who knows exactly what she wants. And who only had 12 shots. Yeah, like, you, you have to get this done, and... You know, for that reason, I feel like some other people might not understand the uh, creative intensity behind it, given the material that she was working in. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one aspect that might have factored into the control that I'd have put into her studio was the lack of control in her marriage 
Dun, dun, dun. Over the years, the romance did chill a bit between Ida and Victor. One source claims that they had an open marriage. Those are the best kind. Yeah, but theirs sounds a little bit messy. Not healthy. Yeah. It, I mean, like at one point, Ida was sleeping with her photography assistant, who was also acting as her husband's gallery assistant, and he was also living in the house as the cook. Wait, what's to say they didn't share? I mean, there's no mention of that in the records I came across. It sounds like things are very separate. Like, over the years, they did drift apart, but they were no less supportive of one another, like, even after they divorced in 1969, when she was 61. Yeah, I like, a bit, there was a point in their house, like, they lived on different floors of the house. They would still telephone one another and touch in, but their their existences were very separate from one another. So, I non-traditional. I think Ida took it a little harder than Victor. She was a little bit more of a traditional romantic and, you know, wanted that idealized sense of love. She had a harder time with the nature of the relationship. But in, in terms of her photograph, Ida photographed some very big names that today, I mean, they're famous to us, but at the time, not so much. So she photographed writer T.S. Eliot, uh, sculptor Alberto Giacometti, which he's the guy that has those very thin, long men sculptures that are walking. And also, most important of all, no nonsense, Minerva McGonagall, A.K.A. Maggie Smith, um, taken in 1961. That's fucking great. Oh, man. What's it like to deal with her? Oh, I'll include that photo up on the show notes because it's it's pretty crazy. That's that's goals right yeah. there. <laughs> uh, for me, I thought it was interesting. She uh, she took some photos of Raymond Chandler. He essentially created like the hard-boiled detective genre in the 1920s and 30s in the United States. I guess her manager subscribed to, like, a tip-off service. And when he flew in, they were like, oh, you have an appointment for photos with us. And he was like, okay, cool. And then afterwards, she would sell the photos to the press. She, ha! I I thought that was funny. I know, it's a little bit of a side bit. That's pretty funny. No, that's pretty great. But I needless to say, it was a very wide variety of people that Ida photographed and was also friends with. You know, her London friends, they were French and German and Armenian and Bulgarian. And Ida's diverse social group, it was a very untypical English thing. I mean, this is where people were in the same circle of people matching themselves. A gallerist described her as, quote, not understanding the English way of doing things. She was black and white, clumsy, and she went about things heavily. (laughs) But for Ida, I mean, she was kind of ballsy. She was always confident in her work, saying, quote, as for me, I don't think I'm any less than Prince Philip as I represent Great Britain in my art. Oh, I yeah. love her. And that quality of her being confident in herself and her work, I mean, that was also something that off-put people because like, oh no, it's a confident woman. What you gonna do? You know, the galleries showed Ida some love during her lifetime. There was appreciation for her work when she was alive, which for an artist, big fucking deal. Unheard of. You know, the photographs she had of Britain's kind of cultural elite, that work got her into galleries. She had a solo show in 1954 at the age of 46 at the gallery that Victor managed. And then in 1960, she's 52, uh, she had a very important show at a Whitechapel art gallery. Is it the same Whitechapel from like two episodes ago? Oh shit, you remembered and it was last episode. Oh, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Close enough. (laughs) I know. And you're also multiple shots of tequila in. So you're doing good. Keep it up. I'm doing good. 
But yeah, the same gallery that we mentioned last episode. And for London, it was the first time a photographer in a gallery in London was presented as a fine artist. And that gallery has been around since 1901. I like like the fact that like a photographer as a fine artist, that was huge. And I mean, at that point, it's been over 100 years since the advent of photography. And there's still the debate over whether or not photography is an art. I get it. I know you're not contesting the fact. I'm just saying it is absolutely an art, even today. Yeah. I mean, like when the, uh, maybe you can help me out because I'm going to misfucking pronounce it. The daguerreotype, the, oh, fuck me. That was terrible. Daguerreotype? That word. Yeah. When that came about in 1839, that kind of kicked off the process of a lot of artists being pissed off. I mean, the nature of photography, it's cheap. If you have a little bit of money, pretty much anyone can do it. And that threatened the livelihoods of artists. I mean, like you, like Ida thought that was BS. Um, but on a on an interesting note, she considered herself not a photographer, but an artist with a camera. Yeah, you're painting with Yeah, light. so I think for her, that was another way of kind of distancing herself from people who had more of a, you know, kind of commercial interest in things. And when Whitechapel did a retrospective, like, it helped give cred to photography as art. And this is a a gallery who were, you know, showing leading contemporary artists like Picasso and Jackson Pollock and, you know, his wife we covered last episode, Lee Krasner. Mm -hmm. Right. And also, like, the format of her show helped set the standard for other art photographers after her. She uh, she displayed her work large scale and backed them on panels. So it, it was more of a finer approach to it that other people did mimic in gallery shows. And like even with art world validation that Ida received, like tastes were changing in the late 60s and 70s. Glamour photography and, you know, pop art, that's what was big. And Ida's really like intimate black and white dramatic portraits didn't fit in with those trends. While in her early years, she did play around with surrealism, overall, she really stuck to her guns as to what she wanted with her own style and execution, and she wasn't one to conform her style to a popular movement. No, which, you know, does have financial repercussions, and that did result in fewer commissions. And her her later years were stressful. Ida had really fleeting relationships, she was in poor financial standing, And those two things were probably really significant in bringing about her bipolar disorder in her later years. And by the time Ida passed away in 1974, she died broke and alone on Christmas Eve after several stays in psychiatric hospitals. Shit. Okay, so that is all really depressing. I know. But her ex, Victor, and then later his partner, a fellow art collector and curator, they kept up the task of carrying on Ida's work. And documenting it and selling it and showing it to the galleries. And then later on, after they passed, her um, her gallery assistant, that was also her husband's gallery assistant and was also the household cook, he he took it up as well of, you know, keeping charge of her artwork because, you know, they never had children right. during their marriage. And all that effort, I mean, that's what got Ida's work in the National Portrait Gallery in London today, along with other leading galleries and museums. So over the years, there has been a renewed interest in her work, you know, that's gotten it shown at these these bigger organizations. And today, like we talked about, like, it's so hard to not consider photography art, but the work that Ida was doing and where she was showing it and how she was showing it, that helped facilitate 
that public acceptance of photography as art. So depressing death, but overall good life. So that is Ida Carr, artist with the camera. Shit. So that's it. You can go home now. That's all. We're done here. We're done here. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you're really amazing. You guys are. We super duper appreciate it. Um, so, Milana, if people are interested in learning a bit more about the artwork from this episode and the science, where can they go to find out more? We have a website. You can see us at myfavoritefeminist.com. We also have an email you can reach out to us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We also have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminists. And you can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, rate, subscribe. It does make a difference. And let us know if you could be bitten by any radioactive animal, what would it be? Why? And also, what's your superpower? Megan? Oh, man. I don't know. I'm thinking about this one. So if I was an animal... I would be a goat, ideally a Moroccan tree goat. So it would be interesting mm-hmm. to be bitten by a radioactive Moroccan goat. So you can just climb trees like you normally do? No, like on the sides of like a sheer cliff, there I am, chilling out, having a cup of tea. You're like, why the <laughs> fuck are you up there, Megan? It'd be like, because I'm away from all of you guys. That's your superpower? Yeah, it'd be like a goat because they can climb and jump everywhere. Hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, judging my superpower, what would yours be? Hmm. I've thought about this a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We're very different people. A ladybug. What? What radioactive freak powers would a a ladybug bestow upon you? I'm I'm going off the assumption that, like, the superstition that ladybugs bring luck. Okay, I can see that. So I would love to be... A super TM, just TM over here, because I think I might actually want to make a a series out of this. I would love to be a superhero that used her luck for the people around her. Okay. To kind of like make people's lives yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, nudge things along. Yeah. Oh man, or you can like torture someone as a lady. Well, no, because if everyone around you has like amazing luck and you just if you opt not to use your luck on one person in particular, but everyone else around them is always super lucky, that's torture. You could use them for evil. I'm not that person, <laughs> Megan. I get paid shit money to take care of sick animals. I am the farthest thing from that person. Hey, Scruffy uses <laughs> animal glands uh, taken care of. Well, I guess you're going to have to go to your veterinarian because I'm three states away and no way in hell am I putting my hands up his ass. He wouldn't like that either. He's scheduled for Wednesday. He'll get taken care of. Um, But yeah, I'll let you know how it goes because he's going to fucking hate us. Um, But all right, Ladybug, that's super sweet. Man, I just seem super insensitive and I just want to have climbing abilities to get away from everyone. And be like, you don't understand. There's there's a really good piece of vegetables up here. (laughs) I thought about it, no, because, like, I would, like, I mean, because I would love to, like, get into people's minds and, like, do all these cool things. But, like, at the same time, like, all of the cool things I could do, all of the lives I could affect, I don't know, by just willing it, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, now my radioactive goat bite is just completely self-serving and selfish on my end. 
All right. Well, guys, tell us what your radioactive bites would be and what would they do. Um, and if you'd be a selfish <laughs> bastard like me or thoughtful and wonderful like me, Letta, um, let us know. So, as always, you guys are pretty cool and hopefully not actually radioactive. Um, so, until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.